There won't be class next week. That's been on the calendar for a long time. We're having a colony leaders meeting at Ananda Village. These are my carefully planned three short trips that are virtually one long one. But then, in theory, after that, they're not going anywhere. All right. Any questions left over from last week before we begin? I'm still trying to understand the idea of the will of God. Pardon me? I'm still trying to understand the idea of what the will of God is. I think that's important. And so, like, for instance, global warming and the fact that maybe the Atlanteans are going to have things blow up and things like that. No, that was the cheerful note we ended on last That's week. right, something like that. All right. And uh, so... What do you think Divine Mother's trying to accomplish by that, or who knows? Individual self-realization. That's what you have to stand back from. There is no external plot that has any meaning apart from individual self-realization. So what Divine Mother is trying to create is a perfect school for souls to learn the karmic lessons they need so they can attain individual self-realization. That doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of other conscious forces at play because it's all very complicated. I, I used to be quite... Um, I used to dismiss as a sentimental idea, for example, that the earth ha- itself had a consciousness. I just It was a little too new-agey for me and I could just never go there. And then I was with Swami in Assisi and he was showing us this fascinating vis- video about crop circles... The particular video we watched was called Star Dreams, with a Z on the end of the word dream. I don't know whether there's other videos, but it was a particularly interesting one. Crop circles are an amazing phenomenon. They're exquisitely beautiful. There's just many things about them that are really interesting. And afterwards we were talking with Swamiji about, you know, where do they come from, what are they? And one of the theories was that Mother Earth herself is projecting it upward. And... In that conversation, he, he just said, yes, of course the, the earth is a conscious being or there's a deity that controls the earth that has consciousness because everything is run in an orderly manner and is run from a higher level. He didn't really bring it to a clear focus and I just said to say, well, I guess I have to revise my thinking on that one because it's obvious that it would. It's, a, it's an organized system that would have to be coordinated from somewhere and it would be natural that there would be a deity who would be in charge of it. Um, but their job, working, you know, if you sort of go up the, the chain of command, however that works, it's all in response to divine law, and all of our experiences are given to us to, to, to help us understand where happiness, divine law is what actually brings us fulfillment and what actually brings us happiness. Divine law is not somebody arbitrarily. In America, as I, when I was talking to our attorney when we were in the middle of litigation, and we would, we would make suggestions all the time, and she, she would say to us, law in America is not intuitive, nor is it rational. She said, it's political. It simply is what it is. And you have to know what it is, and then you have to adjust to it. And she was always telling us, you can't reason your way to it, because it just isn't. Okay, but divine law is orderly. It's not political. (laughs) Divine law is a response to the way we're made. And we, for, and this is, you know, the big question, for whatever reason, we as individual souls on this journey, as, as Swami puts it through the little bird, we get really excited when we begin to feel our own individual power. And we begin to, to find pleasure in exercising our individual power for our own individual satisfaction. And we lose track of the consequences of that. Even though repeatedly, as it says in the Festival of Light, we lost everything we had. It takes us a while to realize that this excitement and pleasure in exercising our own power for our own satisfaction actually undermines our happiness rather than produces it. So we just go through experience after experience after experience to understand who am I in truth, meaning what is the real part of my nature, 
What is it that actually fulfills me instead of just appearing to fulfill me? What actions and attitudes on my part facilitate what I really enduringly want? And not just in one cycle of birth to death, but through countless. And so this entire planet and all planets in all solar systems are are vibrations of energy that produce certain circumstances into which individual souls can incarnate can incarnate because those circumstances will um, give them their needed lessons. And so there is no other point. Now, of course, this soul may need to become a ruthless dictator and all of these people may need to be tortured and killed by him, but it isn't that, that God wants a ruthless dictator and God wants these people to be tortured and killed. God wants every soul equally to work out its karma and learn its lessons being a ruthless dictator is a a pretty bad thing to do but if if and apparently the answer is yes if soul a soul or souls need that experience in order to find out where my fulfillment really comes from then the vibrations of the universe will establish that opportunity and it will come to you. And then nobody will get drawn into that particular vortex who doesn't vibrate with that vortex. And for example, you know, the whole thing of the yugas, the yugas are a physical phenomenon. They're not astrology, they're astronomy. It's where the physical planet is in relation to the physical center of, of the galaxy and so on like that. The whole thing, it's all physical so that it creates a certain planet in the material world that's having a certain vibration of consciousness so that all those souls from the astral world who need to incarnate in a physical body, they'll go to the planet and if this planet is too gross for that soul, they'll go to the one that's having a higher age. And if that higher age is too subtle, then they'll come to one that's gross. So what we're on right now is and then you have the masters who are you know, sort of um, helping to create the particular vibratory conditions into which the souls can incarnate. And we wanted to be on Dwapara Yuga Rising, the transition point, which is a point of great conflict. All of Dwapara is a very insecure age. Even though technology is increasing, the moral structure of people is a little behind. So it's always a little tenuous War continues, but war can be waged, you know, from a great distance on anyone as we see what's beginning to happen. So, you know, you're always in danger of being blown to bits by someone you, you, you can't even see. It's not even like you can, you know, pull out your sword and at least have a chance if you're well trained. It's like you can just be going about your business and kaboom. And there's not a lot you can do about that. And that's all part of the story. But we also, and primarily, we're part of Master's family. And Master and Jesus and the others are working with this particular transition. And so their presence um, is the primary deciding uh, factor in the vibration of this planet as far as we are concerned. You know, the reason we came here was because Swami, Master took the job, he rounded up Swami and Swami got his troops. This is, that's as simple as that. And that's why, I think that's why we're here. And, you know, we would have gone anywhere that he wanted us to go, or at least, well, maybe there's probably, there's a bigger army than that, so maybe others would have gone if we didn't fit. But it was our opportunity to come and help the project. Yes. Um, I'm just wondering if, like, when we talk about, like, does God actually have a plan for this, I'm wondering... Like, does that even make sense, even on the scale of, like, global warming? Because one way of looking at it, I would think God's plan was to give us free will yes. and let us figure out how to find him from there. And to some extent, even at the level of global warming or ruthless dictators, does he actually care? Because we're just going to create, I mean, across the universe, every situation is going to arise. So whatever we do gravitate towards magnetically, we will find somewhere a way to incarnate for it. 
but really it's like he's watching his kids learn to play Monopoly and if they lose a few games who really cares right. you know and they'll learn from it right and, and I think what, what God wants from us is our love and our freedom so God's will for us if you really want to say what is God's will God's will is that we turn in devotion and love toward our true source of happiness and that we receive the, inf- the infinite, infinite abundance of happiness which is our actual birthright. And the, the, it's a very good way that you put it, Tanda, but it's just like we're, to a certain extent, we're making the circumstances that allow us. When I speak of God's will in terms of global warming or ruthless dictators, what I'm really trying to say is this plot, the plot of this whole story is not the plot of can't we make it work better so we'll all be more comfortable. That's just simply not the plot. The plot is how can we become free? And so the, the, only, the only lasting plot is individual self-realization. And that's what you have to... Re- individual self-realization is eternal. Ruthless dictators are quite temporary and actually inconsequential in the context of eternity. But they're extremely consequential for the individual souls who are going through the experience. But from the point of view of God's plan, but global warming is the inevitable result of this collective action, and we're going, we'll get to suffer from it and reflect on it and learn something. You know, what, what, we're, what this planet is giving us an opportunity to find out is what happens if you divorce yourself from the natural world? What happens if you take from the natural world without living in harmony. What happens when you do that? Oh, this is what happens. And so we get to find out and then we get to integrate that information, not so much because it's about global warming, but there's deeper lessons in consciousness. You know, this is a a planet of greed right now and so a lot of people are getting to learn about greed. And uh, that's a very good thing to learn about because greed is one of those things that trips you up many incarnations so even if you're um, a small person in terms of greed still I, I, re- I was reading a biography recently of, an, of a man who was uh, 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 part of the he was a Jew in France during the second world war and it, it, yeah, it, the story is not important but he became and he ended up well the story is important I mean he ended up working the resistance and he he, had, he played a big role in that whole story and on two different occasions he, well, he, was, he was captured and incarcerated for a time and um, he felt it was absolutely essential that not one improper thing ever be done by him or on his behalf because he felt there was so much evil that he couldn't participate even at all and what actually happened which was very strange he was incarcerated in the camp and his girlfriend, um, well, basically she traded her body for a visa for him with, with some South American. So she got him out and she gave him the visa and he said, how did you get this? And when he found out how she got it, he wouldn't take it. He went back to the camp. Which was, of course, a very hard thing to do. But in his own heart, he felt that if, if he touched in any way, touched anything that wasn't purely honorable then it would all be lost for him it was partly just intuition he knew he couldn't win by any such means you would think such a thing would be justified but not for him yeah interesting and there was a couple of other instances like that where he just absolutely held and at great cost to himself not a small sacrifice at all but he just he couldn't take it interesting so, any other questions or comments? So when I say, when I'm talking about, you know, people like global warming, species extinction, all of the things that people are so anxious about and with good cause, and I say, well, you have to think about it in, in, in terms of God's plan. What I mean by that is um, we're not in, it, it, the plot is not human comfort. And if you try to figure it out from the plot, from human comfort, and therefore if human beings just get a bit more organized, which essentially means if they would behave more like I want them to behave, 
then this thing would be all right. Uh, that's just not taking into account that that's not the plot. And so therefore we can never do it. Like Swamiji said, you have a school and you have all the students going through the school. And because it's a school and the students are all learning, the school is always going to be a little wonky in a lot of places because it's, the students are there learning. You can never make everything in that school work perfectly because the whole point is it's the students who are moving through it. And so that's what's happening on this earth is that we're being born, we're living through it, and we're learning as we go. And we're just not going to get a perfect score on every test. If you had a school where every student got a perfect score on every test, I mean, what kind of a... Nobody would be learning anything. It would just be all... It wouldn't be what it is. And then you'd have to freeze it because you could never bring any new ones in who couldn't read. (laughs) Because the school needs to run... See, see how... And that's what people are doing with the planet. They think we'll just get it organized and then nobody will be here whoever messes up and then we'll have the perfect planet. But that isn't the point. It just isn't where we're supposed to be. That that you know that's hard because a lot of things go on that are very scary. But what is that's where that's where you have to just shift like this. Okay. Any other comments or thoughts? Good questions. Okay. Now we are on number seventy. We go into this little cycle now about human love, human relationships. Master remarked to me once out in the desert, I used to have many friends and I enjoyed their company. Then someone said to me, I once had lots of friends and was sure I would never forget them. After I married, however, I forgot them all. I then realized that my dependence on them had actually been a desire for a companion of the opposite sex. On hearing those words, I said, Master said, Thank you very much. You have taught me an important lesson. Since then, I have always kept myself somewhat apart. Interesting. This is the solitude is the price of greatness um, remark. But Master, at the same time, was a dear and devoted friend to many people. And Swamiji himself writes at the end of the path that our repeated relationships with one another as a spiritual family incarnating together over and over again in service to this work is also part of our path to self-realization that we must not only spiritualize our relationship with God but we also must spiritualize our relationship with the the objective world and especially with one another but to spiritualize those relationships is not the same as creating intimate human relationships you know whether romantic or friendship relationships with the the whole thing that master's touching on there is where where am I looking for my fulfillment? And it's a very fine line given the way both Master and Swamiji conducted themselves. You know, Swamiji was very attentive to human relationships. But he, he wasn't really social in the sense that it wasn't like he, he needed people around him or anything like that. But he, he was attentive to the... Um, well, but let me put it differently. Swami's relationship with everyone was always for what he could offer them spiritually. And if he was with people who didn't want what he had to give them spiritually, he just became essentially virtually silent. If, if we were ever in company where he just couldn't find an appropriate opening, and that, that didn't mean he always had to talk about spiritual subjects. There's a story in my... Uh, book about Swamiji of uh, I believe it was from Jayadev and they were in Europe and they were at the home of the parents of uh, two of the members of Ananda Sisi uh, very refined people the parents you know highly educated um, very high values very very um, generous and selfless but not not spiritual in our way but but good people and so they weren't really interested in our path per se, but Swamiji respected them for the, the integrity of their own lives and also, of course, um, valued their support because uh, of their children who were engaged with us. 
So Swami Jayadev talks about in that conversation about how he sat at, din- at the dinner table with Swamiji and the conversation went everywhere, um, politics and, you know, just uh, environmental issues, just lots and lots and art, music, lots of interesting conversation, but none of it spiritually inclined. And Jayadev was sitting next to Swami feeling like what a missed opportunity. You know, his concept of what, what conversation should be was we should just be talking about the guru or kriya or something. And, and just to finish that, he was just sitting there sort of feeling a little judgmental and he heard Swami very quietly under his breath singing one of the chants. You know, and he just realized suddenly that whatever Swami was talking about, his consciousness was somewhere else. So what I mean by that is that Swamiji was charmingly appropriate in all circumstances. But I've seen him in places where the conversation just wasn't elevated enough for him to engage in. People were just talking on a level of trivia or materiality that he just he couldn't engage. And he would just become quite contentedly, just quite contentedly silent. Even in environments where people were allegedly being spiritual, uh, but were just not receptive to what he had to say. He would make an effort, and then once it was clear he, his input wasn't needed, he would just retire quietly into himself. He didn't have any necessity to shine. But whenever there was energy drawing from him, I mean, he would take over the whole um, situation because that's what he was there for. That's just simply that. And if, if you didn't want that from him, then there was no relationship. So it, it, that's what I mean by he wasn't social but he was engaged with people if there was a higher purpose for him to be engaged with them. But what Master's talking about is this, this uh, all-too-common inevitable inclination um, to, to uh, feed ourselves from other people uh, in ways that are not really going to serve us. And he specifically draws this because Master was a monk and, you know, he he didn't want to just be sublimating, not that he actually would, but he was playing the role, sublimating that desire for a mate into just having all all these friends. But really what he was doing is he was still following that same line. He was just pushing it in another direction. And that's what he's also saying here. Because, you know, a perfect renunciate it's a very subtle reality. But I, I, I balance that by saying, but Ananda's very warm-hearted. And when I've, I've, whenever I've seen someone within Ananda become too austere, not because they were drawn to be austere, but because they thought they ought to be austere. I've never seen it work for them. I've always seen such people always be essentially going against the tide and then eventually just riding a different tide out the door. So there has to be a certain relaxation. Some people have her, you know, you just do look at yourself and you just have to really be honest about what's really genuine. And then you have to be really honest about whether you're drying up or expanding. I never said it would be easy. He never said it would be easy. Does that make sense? Very subtle. You know, Swami can only talk so much about the monastic path in a, in a public book, but uh, there's a lot of hints that are very interesting. Okay, anything more about that? Number 71. Think how for thousands of years, oh, this is this wonderful one. Think how for thousands of years human lovers have vowed under the moon to love each other eternally and the moon looks down and laughs to see their skulls strewn over the sands of time. (laughs) That classic romantic line of his. And the moon looks down and laughs to see their skulls strewn over the sands of time. Such is human love. He was talking to the monks. This body seems so permanent but life is brief. The love entertained by people for one another is an abstraction. Only love itself, like life itself, endures for eternity. Its forms 
change constantly. Outward attachments also change. God's love alone is eternal. So just really an absolutely gorgeous paragraph, but it's really a challenging one, isn't it? But what he's talking about is, um, you know, again, it's all about levels. In in uh, the holy signs, the little tiny bit I know about the holy signs, Sri Yukteswar talks about until the heart is purified, we have to we we are compelled by our own nature into into intimate close relationships with people because unless we are pushed into those close relationships the uh, unresolved issues of the heart simply don't come to the fore. And that by no means means that everybody has to marry, but we don't live as hermits. We're, we're drawn like this. And of course, for most people, and for most people, you know, the householder path is the right path. It's just, it's just simply necessary. Sexuality makes people too restless, and as Swami said, they, they don't get freer by suppressing that energy. Often they just become more and more bound it's much better just to make an appropriate alliance and then work with it. But let's not get too excited. That's what he's also saying. You know, let's not just get too exaggerated in the way we define it. You know, be, be good spiritual friends to each other and be conscious, both of you, that you are being a channel, that, that the love that you're experiencing is not because of each other but because of the fact of love, that love exists and I am experiencing love and I am experiencing love in your presence and I am directing love toward you. But as he says, the forms change. So it isn't as if this union is creating that love. It's that love exists and this union gives us an opportunity to express it. And then the more, the more exaggerated we get about that in the wrong way, which is what he says about lovers pledge themselves eternally and then they die and they don't even remember. And we don't want to um, embarrass ourselves. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that even that romance is not appropriate or a very romantic attitude is not appropriate. It just has to be balanced with an awareness, uh, a slightly impersonal, you know, um, one of our uh, well-known Ananda couples was the, the man was reputed reputed to have told his wife on their wedding night that he wanted her to understand that he considered marriage a job, and he and he said then emphatically, "Now don't misunderstand. I intend to do a very good job," <laughs> he said, "but it's a job. In other words, I'm not going to I'm not going to mis- mistake this for something that it's not. This is my karmic." My appropriate karmic assignment in this life is to be a good husband to you and I intend to be a very good husband, and he has been. But he's not going to say to her, you know, now that I've found you, everything in my life is settled forever and you are the source, the beginning and the end and the middle of everything for all eternity. That's what Master says, people just laugh at you. Because things happen, forms change. Yeah. It's, it's, but, and, you know, then soulmates is something completely other, which isn't related to romantic love in this way. So it's, it's always very complicated. Very complicated. Okay. Any other comments or thoughts about that? You know, Swamiji, we're a householder community. Swamiji himself, you know, got married for a while, and he was very distressed when our community was turning extremely monastic at the period of time when he got married. 1980, 81, and then with uh, Parameshwari and then Rosanna a few years later, um, the community was just going all monastic. And it wasn't as if all those people were actually called to the monastic life. It was that people thought they ought to be monastic. I'm serious spiritually. If you're serious spiritually, you should be a monastic. Therefore, I'll be a monastic. People just were not moving from any kind of inner call, it was becoming a very outward thing. And it was just, it was, the whole thing was falling over to the side. And Swamiji prayed to Master and said, you know, everything about Ananda has been defined by me. How are we going to solve this? And that was when he felt Master say, well, why don't you get married? Swami said, sir, I'm a monk. <laughs> and he felt Master respond, for you it doesn't matter now. 
And so he said, all right. And then eventually he married Rosanna. And it did right the community. What actually happened when he, he, he met Parameshwari and uh, brought her back to the community and essentially said, I'm not going to be a, a Swami anymore. You know, I have a partner now. They never actually married and she didn't stay. But what happened was Swami walked back and said, I felt inwardly guided to do this. And uh, the, for, there was a certain response from a certain element in the community that said, essentially, you need to stay in the box we've put you in. <laughs> you know, you belong in the Swami box and how, how can you step out of the Swami box? And Swami said, I felt inwardly guided to do this. And then there would be from some people still the response, but you need to stay where we put you. And he, he more or less said, you know, among other reasons why I'm doing this is I, you don't own me and I'm tired of it. But the other thing he said is I felt inwardly guided to do this. And what happened in the community it wasn't really about it, monastic or householder. It was like people stopped and thought, what do I feel inwardly guided to do? Not what do I think I should do, but what do I actually feel coming out of me? And the monasteries pretty much went to the ground at that point, which was unfortunate. Um, you know, now they're, they're coming back in a very nice way. But it had just it was so out of balance, it, it had to swing a little bit before it could come back to where it meant to be. Um, what was I reading that? I just I forgot what the what the paragraph was. Oh yes, it was all about human love and so on. But you know, Swami was very dignified and he was very um, ardent in his affections, but uh, always within reason. <laughs> he wasn't cold, is what I mean. And I remember when one of the monks got married and basically was going to try to be a married monk, Swami's response was, you cannot have it both ways. <laughs> if you're going to marry, you have to become a true householder. You can't, you have to accept the whole story of being a householder. You can't just you know, do it with half your will. Plus, of course, it's not fair to your wife or your husband in that case. Yeah. Okay. Any questions or thoughts about this? All right. Number 72. Master, I said one day, what is the reason you have accepted many into the monastery who obviously weren't suited to the life here? I think it was quite comical there for a time. Swami said at one point, you know, the monks would go out dancing on Saturday nights and they couldn't quite really understand why that wasn't okay. <laughs> it was never organized. It was just that they just lived there and, until Swami got there. And Master answered, it is because I came with a special dispensation, he replied. There have been times, I admit, when some of those I accepted were very hard on the organization. He didn't add what I now believe to be true, that he'd made a commitment to those individuals in former incarnations and wanted to encourage them toward their own eventual salvation. Indeed, it was constantly impressed on me that far from being merely the president of an organization, he was the loving father of a family of spiritual seekers, many of whom were still wandering in delusion. I asked him next, do you want us to be as lenient in accepting people after you are gone? No, he replied. You must be stricter. It's a very interesting paragraph, isn't it? You know, in a sense, it, it's like, what is the purpose of the monastery? It's the same question as like, what is the purpose of the world? What is the purpose of the spiritual organization? Is it to just keep everybody in line and nobody ever does anything strange? And was it yesterday or somewhere when I was talking recently? I was referring to um, that time in 1994 to 98 when, when Ananda was accused of being a predatory environment in which women were the playthings of the men and I mean ludicrous charges, so, so ludicrous that we never took them seriously under vastly underestimating the distortion potential of the American so-called justice system but that's over here. Um, but it created this you know, you, you sort of, you pull a band-aid off certain things and you discover that a, a lot of people have a lot of issues. 
So suddenly when this whole issue of how women are treated and whether women are being treated or mistreated, it just it was it was just this whole thing erupted out of Ananda that um, had been festering, which is it, it's actually it's more complicated than that. I should say it more accurately. Let me, let me sort of give you a little more context. At that period of time, something was happening to the yoga movement in America, and this predated our lawsuit altogether. And Swami saw it begin to happen, and what was beginning to happen is that people were trying to integrate a psychological and a spiritual approach. And they were trying to sort of have this spiritual facade, but what they wanted to bring into it was the ego's right to assert itself. And one of the key, really key issues between psychology and spirituality, now don't misunderstand me, psychology has a place, but a big difference between psychology and spirituality is that in the spiritual field, you are never a victim. You, you can never be a victim because of the law of karma, because of reincarnation, because it's all about your consciousness. It's not about what happens to you. It's only about how you respond what happens to you. You, know, you can never be a victim. The whole idea that anybody's ever done anything to you um, is, is, is completely contrary. If you read Swami's book, Sadhu Beware, and he gives all those rules for how to actually overcome the ego, which means if people, which includes if people accuse you, don't explain yourself. You just leave it. Who cares what they think? And but you have to have an enormous amount of psychological health to be able to stand in that, because you know who you are before before your conscience and God, and you simply don't need your your next step is not to stand up for yourself. Your next step is to repudiate yourself. That's why even when Swami was, when we were in all that litigation, Swami was just a terrible witness. Because even though he was forced to answer questions, he would never defend himself. And he never gave any vibration of needing to persuade, which made people think he was guilty. Because he, he just never tried to tell you that he wasn't, vibrationally even. He was just so impersonal about those. And there were many reasons why everything went gablooey in certain ways. But that was also one of them. But the psychology movement, the idea of psychology is, I find out who I am, I know I have my appropriate boundaries, I speak my truth, I stand up and declare I have certain rights, you know, things must be organized to respect who I am. Just a whole, there's a whole lot of things that follow. At a certain stage of your development, that's exactly what you ought to be doing. And sometimes people who don't have, who have been actually abused or mistreated, and, and you know, bad things have really happened to them, and they've never had the courage to respect themselves enough to stand up and say, that's not appropriate behavior, I will not accept that. They try to skip all the way they just try to skip that whole, that whole need and they just surrender it all to God. They try to surrender it all to God, but they've really, they're motivated by fear. They're afraid to acknowledge many realities about themselves in their own life. And so that attempt to offer themselves to God is not an actual self-offering, it's actually a fear-based fear action. Does that, do you follow all of that? So Swami saw that people were trying to assert their egos, be able to claim their own rights in all these different ways, and do all that in the context of an ashram. And he saw that it was going to be the death of the yoga movement, because you can't both have your ego and overcome it. And so he actually, at that point, he said he started going onto the yoga circuit and he would go to all these yoga conferences and there was a time there where he was going to all the conferences and being a keynote speaker because he was trying to bring the movement back. You know, people were getting restless at, uh, in a lot of the ashrams. This was just the whole movement, the 70s and the 80s time. And he felt that the whole movement needed to be rescued. And so what happened with us when our case came up, it was just exactly that. It was the same thing. You know, 
Ananda's should Ananda's supposed to protect me. Ananda's supposed to be a safe place where I can come. And it's like, no, actually not. Ananda's a place where you're supposed to overcome all your attachments, all your ego, all your hesitations. You know, it's it's a it's not designed certainly it's not designed to hurt you, don't be stupid. But no, it's not meant to be a place where you can settle in and feel safe. It's just the opposite of that. Go ahead. So we serve uh, different populations, one of which are the long-term you know, ashram residents who are really on this path, and another population is the people who you know, come in for Med 1 or Sunday service right off the street. Would you say what you just said equally for both groups? Well, I would never lie about what the spiritual path is. You know, it, a woman asked me once, she said rather suspiciously, does Ananda believe in family values? She said it like that. I said, not above divine values, no. If family interferes with your search for God, then family is not the value anymore. And that, I mean, that's an, it's a related thought, you know, but it doesn't mean that anybody who comes in for Med One has to leave their husband or wife just because they're not accompanying them in. But the path is what it is. And ultimately, it's between you and God, and everything else is of no consequence. But that doesn't, that's not, that's not relevant to you. It's not relevant to most people when they start. And even for most of us, it's still a, it's a work in progress. But to try to build, to try to, what happened, as I was going back to what happened at Ananda at that time, is this just this sort of movement came up of people sort of demanding the right to, um, the right to assert their egos and be respected for it is what it really came down to. They wanted to be able to just want what they wanted and to be heard and respected for that. And it's a perfectly valid point of view, but you, you can't, it wouldn't be Ananda anymore if you did that. You can be heard, you can be respected for who you are, but then we have a whole other intention. That's not an end in itself. I mean, that's not what we're trying. We're not just trying to make a place where we all hear and respect each other. We're, we're, as, we're, we're all trying to work for Dharma. And just because you feel strongly is not a reason for me to support you. Unless what you feel strongly about is also in tune with the teachings as we're trying to live them. Do you see the, the difference? It's a very important difference. So, I mean... I've, I had conversations with people where they say, you're not listening to me. You're not hearing me. No, actually, let me explain to you. I'm hearing you perfectly. I disagree. It's very different. You know, I disagree. And no, I can't with integrity support what you're saying. I don't criticize you for it. It's valid for you, but it's not. We are what we are. We have to go in a different way. And now why did I bring that up? What on earth made me bring that up? Um, oh, he was, it was just talking, I, I, I was really tangential to this, but um, that he was the father of a group of spiritual seekers and that Master was able, Master was just looking for all the people who, now I'm just going to drop it right there, I'll come back to that because I'm not sure why I went off on that tangent, but I had a reason. Pardon me? Yeah, but I got really confused. So I'm going to do something. Let's take a break. <laughs> yeah, let's ta- yeah, let's sing the school song. <laughs> okay. Now I have no idea why I was saying what I was saying in relation to this particular thing, but I will comment on this whole business about master. Oh, I, it was about an organization. There was the key. Master was not the president of an organization. He was the father of a spiritual family. What is the organization for? The only point of the organization is to give enough structure so that it's the same as the planet. That's where I started. The planet is not meant to work that well. The organization has a job to do, but its entire reason for being is to provide the right setting for individual self-realization. And it is working if people are learning self-realization. It's not working if people find it as a place where they can nest down and just nest down and, you know, know exactly what they're supposed to do and not grow. 
Of course, you see, it's very dicey, though, and this is where Master himself says that. When he was there, he could just run it any way he wanted. That's why Swami said he came in 1948. Master started Mount Washington in 1925. And in all that time, the monastic orders were never organized. They were never systematized. There were never rules set. There were never, you know, real patterns of what they were supposed to do. And, and monks or nuns. It wasn't just the monks. Master never... It, it didn't serve him to organize it. What would it have served him to have rules and people behaving in a certain way? His was a, Swami also said this, his was a direct relationship with everyone and all that he needed was to keep them directly tied to him. You also have to understand that everything went very well then because his magnetism just held it at the center and he had the magnetism that he could hold all these different uh, individuals by that one thread to him and then it didn't just devolve into chaos where whereas if they hadn't been so tied to him their own um, disinclination for the life that they were actually living could have caused a great deal of dissonance and even then he said it was hard on the organization you know you bring somebody with a big temper or with a drinking problem or with a really rebellious nature or someone who's just loud and worldly even though they have a loving heart and you put them in the monastery you know and they're they're just reading bad literature and talking about other things it's very disruptive it's very hard on the organization but they as Swami said they they had the karmic privilege of having master's loyalty so master pulled them in and helped them as much as he could but as he knew as he was leaving, and that's why there was a big house cleaning just before he left, that he, he couldn't let those people stay. Just like Jesus at the end of his life had to purge out those who weren't strong enough to be able to endure what was about to happen and be able to carry the message forward in the right way because all those different people with their own you know, creative interpretation you couldn't leave them there as the representatives when it had to be carried on. You had to have some clarity and some focus in order for it to endure afterwards unless he just wanted it to dissipate in chaos. So those apostles that were left after Jesus died were, were deeply rooted in the reality of who Jesus was. So they were able to work with each other to a, uh, to a large extent and figure out what to do and then they were able to carry on their mission if there had been let's just say the other 12 that were just completely confused who were still asserting their right to define it you can just I mean just imagine the meeting it would have been a mess because there would have been no unity yeah I was just thinking as you said that it was probably Jesus' mercy for those who were not strong enough to withstand that that test when he was crucified. Mm -hmm. Just think of Peter, how strong he was, and someone that didn't have that kind of conviction, right. that turmoil they would have gone through had they stuck with it. That's exactly right. He didn't want to subject them to a test that was greater than they could pass. <coughs> so when Master was alive, he could run Mount Washington in a certain way. But without him there, without the absolute loyalty that all his disciples had to him personally they weren't going to be able to just transfer that to his successor or his successor's successor just they just couldn't do it they wouldn't have the same they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to discipline themselves to it and it just wouldn't even be the right relationship it wouldn't even be appropriate for them to try so he, master sent them away and then told swami no after i'm gone you'll have to run it differently because you're not me it's just, and, you know, Swami Kriyananda has run Ananda in a kind of in-between way. It's very, very interesting in the sense that he also held a lot of people with his own magnetism. People came and went that he, he was able to work with and, and worked, has worked globally. It's very touching, actually, how many people that are not known to many others yet um, exchanged many letters with Swamiji or had... Uh, occasional personal contact with him who, who had a very strong direct connection with him but are not necessarily woven into the fabric of Ananda it's not necessarily even that they couldn't be it just wasn't their karma it was, they had just the karma with him 
but he was the father of a family. He wasn't the head of an organization. He didn't bring anyone, everyone in, and it wasn't necessary to bring everyone in. And, you know, when, now that Swami's gone, but Swami also, in a way that Master didn't do, because it was a different time and a different purpose, he really trained a lot of leaders, and he, he gave those leaders real responsibility while he was still living. So that, as everyone has noticed, it went, even when Swami passed, it just rolled on, because already responsibility and focus had been dispersed. It changed, because still Swami held, held it. There was a geographic center to the planet while Swami was still on it. And once that geographic center was removed, there was a, a different, something different rolled out from it. And much of what Swami was able to do, Swami was able to say to people, you know, you move from there to the other side of the world, you know, he, he could, and people would do it. People would just drop everything and go where he said. And it, it's hard, it's not only hard for others to make that suggestion, it's kind of hard for people to respond even to that suggestion. It's because it, there was a certain, uh, he, gave you, he gave you a sense of daring that uh, is, harder to, is harder to generate without him. It's not that it's absent, but it's different. It's a little bit different. And it remains to be seen, sort of how the whole thing will evolve. But Master said, you have to be stricter, you're not me. It's not going to work in the same way. Did you have a question, uh, Tandava? I was just thinking that um, on the plus side, you know, it was mostly a monastery then, and now we also have a much broader spiritual community that Master, you know, tried to do when he was alive, but wasn't right. the time for it. So, right. you know, we we need to be stricter, you know, in some ways, but there are ways that we're also more inclusive. Yeah, exactly. No, it's all exactly true. And uh, uh, what Swamiji also said was that even though the common sort of understanding in SRF when Master was there was that he was not a good organizer, Swamiji said when later when he really began to reflect on that deeply and was writing books about leadership, that Master was a masterful organizer, but he organized with magnetism and not with rules. And that actually goes on. You know, he, he, he organized with the power of righteous consciousness and with love, and, and that really makes an organization vital because then people are respected and they, they, they feel the loyalty of the people who are in charge and feeling that loyalty, they're more inclined to give loyalty back, all those different things. So Swami's leadership books, he actually wrote when he really reflected on Master and realized how perfectly Master had exemplified Dwapara leadership, which is based on energy and not on rules or position. And so his, his little book, Supportive Leadership and so on, that's all written about how he, how he saw Master work, which is very interesting. He doesn't mention Master because he wrote those, that book especially for a a neutral audience, not a spiritual audience. He wrote it as Donald Walters, and it's not about Yogananda and Kriyananda, it's just about principles, but he got those principles from Master. Interesting. And I remember when he sort of said, you know, I heard everyone say that, and I just kind of went along with it, but when I look back, I realized that Master was superb at organizing. He just did it differently. And that, of course, that's what Swami's taught us. That's what Swami's really taught us. It's all about energy, it's not about position. You don't have authority because you have a position. You have authority if you have magnetism. And otherwise, you can call yourself the great white fish or the king of the apricot orchard and nobody will pay the slightest attention to you. <laughs> I had a woman come to me once who really wanted a... She wanted to have the final word on a certain project. and She wanted me to make people ask her. And people didn't want to ask her because they, they, they found her annoying rather than helpful. Even though she was sometimes right, she was still annoying. I just told her, you make, make yourself useful. I'm not going to give you a title. And I said, even if I told everyone that they had to come to you, I, believe me, they won't. Because <laughs> this is Ananda, they won't. But make yourself useful, and they'll all come to you, whatever we call you. <laughs> That's when Swami was you know, expelled from SRF, and he said to them, you know, just... Tell me that I'm just going to wash dishes for the rest of my life. I'll, you, know, you can put it in writing, because he was so distraught at being expelled. I'll, I'll just do nothing but wash dishes. I don't need to be a vice president or a leader. It's fine. And then uh, 
Tara responded, well, I know you, if you, no matter you're given any toehold, you'll just worm your way back to the top again. She was not very kind. And Swami didn't accept that, but he, he had to say, he said if he were washing dishes, pretty soon dishwashing would become the most popular and the most desirable job because he has magnetism. And even, in fact, when we were going through all that chaos of the lawsuits and we were Swami was being accused of being a dictatorial, heartless, you know, abusive, and taking advantage of everyone sort of leader, he pointed out that he never a- even asked anything of us, what to speak of requiring anything of us, ever. He had no, there was nothing supporting his position, nothing supporting his position. He said, all I've done is just live my life with enthusiasm. And if people wanted to join him, fine. And if they didn't, they didn't. And it was actually really interesting to look at that. Especially at that time, there was just nothing. There was no structure. But he lived his life with so much enthusiasm and he was so much fun that everybody just, wherever he was, you just wanted to be there and then you wanted to cooperate with him because that was the funnest thing to do. It's magnetism, pure and simple. You don't need rules if you have magnetism. And if you only have rules and no magnetism, you're already finished anyway, so you might just as well go do something else. <laughs> All right. So, number 73. Bernard asked the Master, what is the best way to transform emotion into devotion? The company you keep, the Master replied, will determine in what direction your feelings develop. In the company of devotees, those feelings will more easily become devotional. Master, pursued the disciple, what if I am alone, for instance, when I meditate? Am I not always with you? The master replied with a loving smile. Oh, that's such a beautiful one, isn't it? Well, there's two parts to it. I mean, the master's words at the end, of course. But also, just the importance of satsang. And uh, this speaks... This speaks to why Master spoke so strongly about community. And I mean, the whole point of community is if you are with like-minded people who support you in your spiritual endeavors, then you are much more likely, much more inclined to be successful in your spiritual endeavors. How does emotion turn to devotion? The company you keep. Isn't that an amazing statement, really? And when you think then about being surrounded as much as you can be surrounded by people who are also working for devotion just think about what a tremendous advantage that is I mean I certainly know it I mean whenever we go out whenever you have to whatever all the things that we have to do and you're with people who are not upwardly moving in their your their energy I mean it can also be very good for you because it requires that you have a certain strength in yourself but what a relief it is to get back or to get into company. That's why people come to Sunday service, because we're all together. We create that vortex. There's a lot of feeling that's expressed, but all of that feeling goes up in the right way. Even just the most casual relationships with each other, they all happen on a very refined level. And they, 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 they're just not based on personality or flattery or exchange of ego compliments. You know, the most unlikely people become your friends. I, when we used to live at Ananda Village in, um, in the very early years when we didn't have many cars, and from time to time we would come down to the barrier for a variety of different reasons. And so you would, you would pile in a car with someone um, and it would be a four-hour four trip here. And it was always so much fun because you'd end up it, for four hours in a car with people often that you didn't, you hadn't had that much time to spend time with. And it was, it was such fun because invariably at the end of that ride you would have discovered that you were just the dearest of companions <laughs> because we were all, all our energy was moving in the same direction. And, and really, in a true sense, I hadn't thought of it like emotion and devotion. But instead of it just being an exchange of, of, of neutral feelings, everything would always end up just being lifted, just by the company of being with another meditating disciple. And uh, that's the company you keep. Which way, which way are you oriented? 
But then, of course, Master's comment, yes, Master's comment at the end, you know, of his omnipresence with us. Also, uh, not only among ourselves to help each other like that, but it's a pretty powerful atmosphere for much newer people to come into. Yes. Uh, And uh, I just try to think back in any situation where there's a person, number one, that is um, obviously new. I've never met him or her before. Uh, But at the same token, I engage the person, and there's something about the whole process that uh, points that person in the right direction, or they just, they don't say anything. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. And it's also why coming to Sunday service and participating in the devotional events especially is not um, entirely whether you are coming to be inspired. It's that when when serious meditators come to those events, then the atmosphere is created and everybody gets to be uplifted. We had a... One year before they had finished, before they built the what's now the expanding light, when the only temple we had was still up at the seclusion retreat. And at that time, the dining room was right next to the temple. There's a big garden there now, but it was right next to the temple. And uh, it was a dome, slightly smaller. And our community had outgrown the temple. So for the Christmas meditation, there really just wasn't room inside the temple. So half the community was going to meditate in the common dome, and the other half was going to meditate in the temple. And we created what we called the esophagus <laughs> which was this this black plastic structure that went from the, what was the back door of the temple then to the back door of the common room and it was this, this black, black black plastic tube that uh, and, the, and you actually you could in your socks you could slide on it it was really fantastic but we called it I don't know why we called it the esophagus but we did so then you would go between the two buildings through the esophagus and <laughs> And so somebody had this idea. Swamiji was going to split his time. He would be in the morning in the, in the temple and then in the afternoon in the kamanam. So we had this idea that we would split it according to how long you'd been at the community, been in Ananda. So everybody who was five years or more or whatever it was was in the common room and all the other people were in the temple, which turned out to be just an absolutely terrible idea because all, this, all the experienced meditators were in another room and that whole room was filled with people who were, who were new meditators. Of course, the Kaminoam, it was amazing. It was just absolutely brilliant from the start to finish. And Swamiji later described the temple. He said, it was like a migration in there. He said, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out where they were going. <laughs> he said, but there was just the sense of constant movement in there. <laughs> So it was very vivid demonstration, <laughs> but it it uh, when we were all, all newbies on it, our our attendance at Sunday service was we just sort of understood it like it it wouldn't happen unless we were there. It was it wasn't like it was just happening from one place. It was like our being there is what made it happen. And I, I always want to take any opportunity to remind people of that. It's not just whether you feel like coming, it's part of your seva to come. And of course, it doesn't hurt you to come, and it's better not to get too um, cocksure of yourself that you can just like, I don't need to go anymore. Um, it's, a, it's always a little dangerous. But it's also a big service to come because just, you know, the experienced energy in the room. Whenever there's a, a big event at Ananda Village, and a lot of the core of our sangha is not here, and I have to give a Sunday service. It's a very different service. There's that it, it's not like a migration, but I'm very conscious because the whole room is different when when the core is removed from it, very dramatically so. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions or comments? Okay. Let me see. I'll just read 74 and then we'll call it a night. It isn't enough merely to live in this holy place, Mount Washington. Master saying, some people who live here waste their time playing the organ and engaging in other idle pursuits. There are many rats and mice in the canyon on the property. They aren't progressing spiritually. To develop spiritually, you have to make a deep individual effort. Well, I guess that's partly what I was just saying a few minutes ago. You have to keep fresh in your mind 
what you're doing and why you're doing it and stay active with it. Really, the single most important thing on the path is to keep your enthusiasm. Well, I won't. Perhaps the single most important path thing is not. But one of the things that is very important to watch out for is to watch for your enthusiasm. Somebody came and talked to me and they were just... um, they were sort of just talking about, you know, I used to do this and I used to do that. It doesn't appeal to me as much as it used to. And I, I don't know what they actually thought I was going to say. But I said, a couple of years from now, you're not going to be with us anymore. And they were just horrified by what I said. I said, no, look at you. Look at where you're going. This is not automatic. This isn't magic. You don't just sign up and then it's magic. It does not work automatically. It works because you commit yourself to it and you put out the energy. People too often start thinking about these things as if it was a magic incantation. It's not a magic incantation at all. There's not a bit about it that's magic. It's, it's energy given, energy returned. And, you know, at the beginning, when you're effortlessly enthusiastic and it's all new, you don't really understand that. But if you stop putting out energy, it stops giving energy to you. And if it stops giving, if you stop receiving energy, pretty soon it stops inspiring you. And you either go find another ashram where you can start the whole cycle over. There was this man who came to speak to Swami, he was a journalist, and he said, uh, he said, I, I, you know, I, I love to be in, I, I, I'm a spiritual person, and, but I get involved in this path, and I learn, certain path, and I learn all the techniques, and I'm so excited, and then after a little while, it's just not inspiring me so much anymore. So I go over here, and I learn this one, and I'm so excited, and he said, but I, I don't really seem to be getting anywhere. <laughs> Swami said, yes, he said, Yes, going in circles gives you a certain sense of accomplishment. He said, the bigger the circle, the greater the sense of accomplishment. (laughs) But he said, you just make this big loop and then you just keep coming back to the same point. And so people sometimes leave even after a long time because they have allowed their energy to drop. And then it drops below the point where you feel the inspiration. And it drops and you you stop, people stop attending, they stop meditating as much, they stop seeking out their spiritual friends. You you have to be, you have to watch, you have to pay really close attention. Because if you stop putting out energy, you stop getting as much from it. And Maya is very sneaky. Maya is like, you know, it's like like water on a, a, a submersible. You know, it's just always looking for a little hole where it can just get in again. And and merely because we're swimming around down there doesn't mean we're safe. Rats and mice don't make progress. So, again, community helps because there you are. And I mean more than just residential community, but just being part of the group. You can always just find a way to plug in and make something new happen. And you're not just all by yourself trying to whip up enthusiasm with nothing to help you. So, I think that was it. We went tonight from, um, we started at number 70 and we went through number 74. Okay, thank you all. Okay, we skip next week. We'll be at, we're having a colony leaders meeting in the Nanda Village. That should be fun. And then after that, I hope never to go anywhere again. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs>